Hello and welcome to Crime Theories of the Record, the podcast series where I talk about my interpretation of crime theories. This is your host, Karen. Hello everyone, hope that everyone is enjoying the festivities. Feliz Dia de los Muertos to everyone paying respects to their friends, family members, and any loved ones who have departed. I know these last couple of years have been filled with so much loss around the world, but this holiday brings me so much peace just remembering and honoring the life of our dearly departed. So, it feels like forever since I covered a theory, and I think it's time for me to redeem myself. Switching gears just a little from Code of the Streets and Cultural Deviance, I will be focusing on Acre's social learning theory today. But before I jump into this, I would like to remind everyone that I have done some research on the topic but don't consider myself an expert. Being honest, social learning theory is a theory that I really enjoy learning, but I have always seen it as an extension of Sutherland's differential association theory. So for those who are new, I have covered in the past Sutherland's differential association theory, but just to recap, Sutherland stated differential association theory as a set of nine propositions, which introduced three concepts, normative conflict, differential association, and differential group organization. That explain crime at the levels of the society, the individual, and the group. Sutherland hypothesized that high crime rates are associated with normative conflict, which he defines as a society segmented into groups that conflict over the appropriateness of the law. Some groups define the law as a set of rules to be followed under all circumstances, while others define the law as a set of rules to be violated under certain circumstances. Such rebels. Therefore, when normative conflict is absent in a society, crime rates will be low. When normative conflict is high, societal crime rates will be high. If you are interested in learning more about the theory, tune in to Sutherland's Differential Association Theory episode. And I know it feels like forever since I started discussing the Chicago school theories, but that's okay. As noted in previous episodes, the Chicago theories emphasize that criminal values are learned through associations. Even so, this theorist had little to say about precisely how this acquisition of anti-social definitions happened. Sutherland attempted to systemize these insights through this theory of differential association. Along these lines, Akers intended his social learning theory to build on Sutherland by specifying in more detail the mechanisms and processes through which criminal learning takes place, which is why I see it almost as an extension of Sutherland's perspective. But who is Akers? Ronald Akers is an American sociologist who earned a doctorate in sociology from the University of Kentucky and taught at several universities before joining the faculty of the University of Florida, where he served as a professor of sociology and director of the Center for Studies in Criminology and Law. Akers argued that criminal behavior is the product of normal learning. Akers provided little systematic analysis of the structural origins of criminal values and learning except to observe that social location differentially exposes individuals to learning environments conducive to illegal conduct. Nonetheless, Akers made a major contribution in illuminating how people learn to become offenders, which, if you think about it, is a huge thing. When you consider the crime had its genesis on blaming spirits or some unknown dark force. Yeah, we're talking about spiritualism. But Akers' interest in how people learn to become offenders began in 1965 when he accepted his first faculty appointment at the University of Washington in Seattle. In graduate school at the University of Kentucky, he had undertaken a dissertation in the sociology of law under the guidance of Richard Queenie, a well-known conflict theorist, which, side note, gets cited a lot when researching routine activities theory, but that's a theory I'll cover some other day. 
Despite this fact, Akers would be seen as a core scholar within mainstream criminology, in that his work focused on the process by which people become offenders rather than illuminating how capitalism and class inequality are the root causes of crime. As the title of this theory indicates, Akers sees crime as learned behavior through social interactions with others. He admitted that acts in violation of the law can occur in the absence of any thought given, but differential association with conforming and non-conforming others typically precedes the individuals committing the acts. In particularly and similar to Sutherland, Akers noted that the importance of differential association in shaping the definitions that can result in wayward behavior. However, unlike Sutherland, Akers distinguishes two dimensions of differential association, interactional and normative. Differential association that is interactional involves either the direct association with other people like your friends from school that you see daily, or the indirect identification with more distant reference group like celebrities or influencers. And don't get me started on how the internet and the media can in fact blur these distinctions, but the normative dimension is the different patterns of norms and values to which an individual is exposed to these associations. And if you haven't realized by now regarding social learning theory, definitions are the key factor in motivating criminal behavior. People are not a bunch of impulses that are driven mindlessly to pursue gratification through any means available, unless you want to believe that. But rather, people act in large part based on their cognitions, how they define situations and what action they believe is either called for or in the least allowed under certain circumstances. In short, definitions are one's own attitudes or meanings that a person attaches to a given behavior. They are orientations, rationalizations, definitions of the situation, and other evaluative and moral attitudes that define the commission of an act as right or wrong, illegal or legal, good or bad, desirable or undesirable, justified or unjustified. Akers also moved beyond Sutherland in elucidating the dimensions of these definitions. According to Akers, some definitions are general, such as religious values on right and wrong and prohibit committing any criminal acts. Other definitions, however, are specific and pertain to the commission of a certain act. Thus, although a person might believe it is wrong to kill someone, Holding a specific definition might lead to the person to think that it is okay, to shoplift or perhaps to retaliate when insulted publicly. Some definitions are negative and some are positive toward criminal behaviors. Still, others are neutral in the same sense that they encourage offending by justifying or excusing it. Off the record, for those who are already familiar with Hershey's control theory and you love criminologists debating, at the time, Akers with his social learning theory and Hershey with his control theory would engage in a vigorous theoretical debate that would capture the attention of criminologists over the next decades. And whatever, you might not see it as an interesting thing, but when people engage in this type of debate, It just makes my soul so happy. And just to kind of very, but very briefly summarize the debate, Hershey 1969 saw social learning theory as being wholly incompatible with control theory. His view is that social learning is among those theories concerned only with the quote-unquote positive causes of crime, explaining why people do commit crime and delinquency, while control theory is concentrated on quote-unquote negative causes, explaining why people do not. And it is fair to say that this is still current today. Anyways, upon arriving at the University of Washington, Akers was fortunate to encounter another new professor, Robert Burgess. And yes, 
He's the same guy regarding concentric zones. Burgess was interested in applying the principles of behavioral psychology to sociological topics. Given Aker's background in criminology, they soon agreed that one possible target for Burgess' project might be Sutherland's differential association theory. Ugh, full circle. Which sought learning as the basis of criminal behavior. Burgess and Akers agreed that Sutherland's theory was the most fruitful place to explore the ramifications of behavioral psychology for sociology. Akers' collaboration with Burgess resulted in a reformulation of Sutherland's theory titled A Differential Reinforcement Theory of Criminal Behavior. This essay received considerable attention and its enduring importance was in enticing Akers into the study of crime. With a special focus on extending Sutherland's work by eliminating the mechanisms through which criminal learning happens. Eventually, this led to Akers' social learning theory. And now, let's talk about the good stuff. Akers' social learning incorporates four central concepts. 1. Differential association, which is the process through which individuals are exposed to definitions favorable and unfavorable to illegal or law-abiding behavior. 2. It's imitation, which is when a person engages in behavior after observing similar behavior on others. Try to remember this one. And three, definitions, which is a person's own attitudes or meanings that are attached to given behavior. That is, definitions are orientations, rationalizations, definitions of the situation, and other evaluative and moral attitudes that define the commission of an act as right or wrong, good or bad, desirable or undesirable, justified or unjustified. The more a person's definitions approve of an act, the greater the chances are that the act will be committed. And four, and most importantly, differential social reinforcement. Differential reinforcement is the balance of anticipated or actual rewards and punishments that follow or are the consequence of behavior. Most reinforcements leading to crime are social. Sykes and Maxa, 1957, developed a theory of techniques of neutralization. Akers borrowed the insight that otherwise law-abiding people may engage in a criminal act by invoking definitions that justify this act in particular circumstances. For example, you might hear people justifying their behavior by saying, I got into a fight at school to protect my friend, or I hit them back in self-defense. And yes, I am guilty of those. But... On a more technical point, Akers raised the issue on neutralizing definitions in part to reflect a criticism voiced by control theory scholars such as Ruth Kornhauser, 1978, and Travis Hershey, 1969. But for Akers, except in extreme cases like in regards to ideologies held by terrorists, definitions were not so intense as to mandate that the law be broken. Rather, definitions varied in their strength or intensity and in their content, from positive to neutralizing, general to specific, and so on. People are not mechanical devices driven mindlessly into crime by their criminal cognitions. Instead, we hold a range of definitions that create varying levels of motivation to break the law in specific circumstances, sometimes making it very likely to retaliate if disrespected in public, and sometimes making it possible to like decide whether to steal a candy from a store. In the Sutherland's tradition, even those individuals living in high-crime areas are exposed to a mixture of traditional and criminal definitions. For both Akers and Sutherland, the key issue is that this exposure matters. And I agree. The more individuals differentially associate with positive and neutralizing definitions, the more likely it is that they will engage in criminal behavior. Off the record, Control theorists have disputed the idea that if someone never has any contact with criminal definitions, or if they have learned only traditional definitions, then why could they break the law? 
So they offer an alternative explanation of criminal motivation in which people are, by their human nature, motivated to seek immediate gratification, which criminal acts can provide. As such, any criminal definitions individuals hold play no role in motivating crime. And honestly, I always have a hard time picking a side because when I was in high school, one of my professors ingrained in our young minds that humans are selfish little pigs. Those were his words. And with social media, I can totally see how we seek that immediate gratification. But like I have said before, the key here is exposure. So I don't necessarily have to take a side as I personally believe that these theories inform the next. Now, Sutherland's theory also implies that definitions once internalized continue to regulate people's decisions. Akers, however, elaborated this model. First, he noted that in addition to definitions, people can involve in crime through imitation. That is by modeling criminal conduct. And no, this modeling isn't some fashion show runway type of thing, but the concept of mimicking someone's behavior after observing it. Off the record, the weird way I remember this, or I guess it's not really weird, but anyways, is through emotional mimicry. Though its functions is still debated, I first heard of the concept my first year of college as I was low-key obsessed with butterflies and came across the scientific literature by English naturalist Henry Walter Bates. Working in the Amazonas Valley, he found that several species of butterflies to protect themselves from predators could mimic the bright color patterns used by long-winged butterflies to signal their distastefulness. I know, smart. Since then, the concept has been applied to many disciplines, but when I think of it regarding the human species, I think of Ursula Hess and Agneta Fisher's approach of mimicry as a social regulator that subserves the motivation to develop social bonds to fulfill our universal need to belong. And though Akers describes it as the process in which a person engages in the behavior after seeing others engage in that behavior, I think it's important to recognize that mimicking of that behavior can be learned to satisfy that primal need to belong and survive. But to avoid going on a tangent and this tech talk, this concept also makes me think of when I heard that serial killers mimic emotions. And though I did find research that states that serial killers do mimic emotions, I couldn't find much regarding emotional cognitions, or more on the subject, just that they do. But anyways, Akers contended that definitions and imitation are most instrumental in determining initial forays into crime. So at this point, another theoretical issue arises. Why do people continue to commit illegal acts and become stabilized in a criminal way of life? Borrowing from open psychology, he proposed that social reinforcements, aka rewards and punishments, determine whether any behavior is repeated. The continued involvement in crime, therefore, depends on exposure to social reinforcements that reward this activity. The stronger and more persistent these reinforcements, or the more positive the consequences, the greater the likelihood the criminal behavior will persist. Akers called this differential social reinforcement. Akers noted that rewards and punishment could be non-social, such as the physical reactions with taking drugs. But most differential reinforcement is social. However, the theory proposes that most of the learning in criminal and deviant behavior is the result of social exchange in which the words, responses, presence, and behavior of other persons directly reinforced behavior provide the setting for reinforcement, aka discriminative stimuli, or serve as the way through which other special rewards and punishers are delivered or made available. For acres, individuals enter into crime or learn to conform because of the social context in which they are involved. And I think it is fair to say that as social creatures, humans are affected by those with whom they interact, aka or family, friends, 
peers, anyone. For the people we interact with not only expose us to these definitions, but they also present us with models to imitate and with differential reinforcement for criminal or conforming behavior. The most important of these groups are the primary ones, which tend to be family and friends, though they may also be secondary and reference groups. Neighbors, churches, schools, teachers, physicians, the law, or I guess law enforcement, authority figures, and other individuals and groups in the community, as well as social media and other more remote sources of attitudes and models, have varying degrees of effect on the individual's propensity to commit criminal and delinquent behavior. Aker's social learning theory has been subjected to extensive empirical testing. Mostly studies where measures of social learning are used to account for self-reported delinquency. Akers and colleagues 1979 conducted the most comprehensive test of social learning theory, systematically measuring 16 components of the theory in a study of 3,065 adolescents in grades 7 to 12. This study revealed that social learning variables explain 54.5% of the variation in alcohol use and 68.3% of the variation in marijuana use, a far greater level of explanatory power than found in typical self-report delinquency studies. This finding suggests that when social learning theory is fully operationalized, its capacity to explain criminal involvement is substantially increased. Overall, the research is supportive of the perspective, including studies in which social learning theory was tested against competing explanations of crime, such as control theories. A 2000 meta-analysis by Pratt and Cullen reported that in terms of predicting crime or similar behaviors like drug use, the social learning variables of differential association and delinquent definitions had effect sizes that rivaled the effect size for self-control. A subsequent meta-analysis of 133 studies also revealed support for the theory. The effects were consistently significant for differential association and definitions measures, although they were weaker for modeling slash imitation and differential reinforcement. Another comprehensive meta-analysis regarding predictors of criminal recidivism also found that in line with social learning theory, antisocial values and peer associations are strong predictors of free offending, which doesn't surprise me. The theory has been shown to account for variation in crime among felony offenders of both sexes, as well as variation in offending among impoverished youths in the justice system in Uruguay, and even variation in violation of NCAA rules by college student athletes. And for the people working in corrections out there, further evaluations of correctional rehab programs conclude, again consistent with social learning theory, that programs that target and change antisocial values and peers, typically cognitive behavioral interventions, are effective in lowering recidivism. So let's consider that when we talk about reform. In the existing research, the strongest predictor of criminal involvement typically is differential association as measured by the number of delinquent friends, reported by a survey respondent. Critics of social learning theory asserts that the close association between delinquent friends and crime is spurious. And this is where the saying birds of a feather flocking together makes an appearance. This means that delinquent people hang around with one another because they share the same interest, motivation, perspective regarding delinquency, at least in the context of delinquent behavior. The research indicates that such self-selection into peer groups does happen, but studies also suggest that even with self-selection, the continued association with other antisocial peers can amplify delinquent involvement. As Akers reminds us, whereas birds of a feather may flock together, it also is the case that if you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. 
And though I am all for these English proverbs, what Acres means is that whereas people with similar interests may hang out together, it also is the case that if you spend time with undesirable, or in this case, deviant people, it will cause one to take on their deviant traits. To recap, the early Chicago criminologists rejected prevailing individualist biological and psychiatric explanations in favor of elucidating crime social roots. Consistent with this theoretical perspective, they offer the first systematic challenge to the dominance of psychology and psychiatry in public and private programs for the prevention and treatment of juvenile delinquency. The solution to youthful waywardness, they contended, was not to eradicate the pathologies that lie within individuals, but rather to eradicate the pathologies that lie within the very fabric of disorganized communities. The Chicago School of Criminology had a defining influence on the development of American criminology. The school's theories elevated sociology over individual trait explanations of crime. With rapidly changing Chicago as their laboratory, they situated offenders within the broad context of the transformation of the urban United States from an agrarian to an urban industrial society. The Chicago School also made important methodological advances. Quantitatively, they show the value of mapping crime by geographic area. And that is why the Chicago School has a very special place in my heart as I love crime mapping. Anyways, anticipating by decades what would later be called hotspots of crime, they show that criminal acts were not randomly distributed but highly concentrated. For them and myself, place matters. For real. What is it about places with a lot of crime that differentiates them from places without much crime? However, they also value qualitative methods. The members of the Chicago School were not armchair criminologists, but rather walk in their city streets and interview offenders about their personal history type of people. These revelations allow their statistics to come to life, which brings me so much joy, especially when each spot on the map is not simply a data point, but the delinquent and or victim or victims with his, her or their own story. They did not lose the humanity of those they studied, which is perhaps one reason why they sought solutions to crime in social reform rather than in prison construction, which is also why I love the Chicago School. But enough of my fangirl moments. As I have mentioned or alluded to in the past episodes, I think it's time I finally talk about Anomi and Merton strain theory. Some people also call it Anomi. I actually don't know how it's said. I always call it Anomi. But anyways, for that, we will have to wait until next week. Off the record, this podcast series is brought to you by Anchor. Thank you for listening and choosing this podcast. If you're loving what you're learning, follow us on Instagram at ct.offtherecord. That is at ct.offtherecord, where you can visualize some of these theories and get some scoops on upcoming episodes. Come join us and please rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify or whatever platform you're listening from. And don't forget to join me for next week's episode episode.